Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Harrington as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Luke 18. As we're getting close to the end of that chapter, we will not finish it out today. I thought we might, but we will not. But Luke chapter 18, verse 31 through 34, and you can see the title of today's message is A Declaration That Will Turn the World Upside Down. A Declaration That Will Turn the World Upside Down. Now that title is a mouthful, but it's also very, very true. I'm sure that most of you have heard the phrase, the shot heard around the world, that old history title. Wikipedia states that phrase, the, the, the shot heard around the world, comes from the opening stanza of Ralph Waddle Emerson's Concord Hymn, a poem. And it refers to the first shot of the American Revolution at the Old North Bridge in Concord, Massachusetts, where the first British soldiers fell in the battles of Lexington and Concord on April 19, 1775. Well, we're going to go further back in history, as Landon read earlier, as Luke records the words of Jesus that eventually will turn the entire known world at that time upside down. Now, just again, to put it in context, if you weren't here for the last week or so, last week we read of Jesus' encounter with a rich young ruler who desired eternal life, a good thing, but was unwilling to pay the cost of inheriting it. Jesus was teaching his audience that one must be willing to count the cost of denying oneself to follow Christ. Though salvation is a free gift from God, only those who are humble and fully trust the Father can receive this amazing gift of eternal life. But as we come in today's passage in Luke 18, 31 through 34, Jesus now is going to turn his attentions fully onto his disciples upon the 12 men personally chosen by the Father to further his work after his death, resurrection, and ascension. At this time, this included Judas the betrayer. Knowing his time is short and that they are almost to Calvary and his appointed time at the cross, Jesus informs them one last time of what they should expect when they arrive there at Jerusalem. So with that, we're in Luke 18. Again, I want to encourage you to bring your Bibles. If you do not have one, please let me know. I'd like to get one to you after the service so that you can have a copy of God's Word. The first, the passage is up here on the monitor. But join with me silently as I read. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what he said. Father, I pray that we not be so today, this morning. Father, that your spirit would come and illuminate our minds and open up our eyes spiritually, that we may grasp what you're teaching here, the importance of your death, your resurrection, and finally, Lord, all these things that come together. Lord, I thank you for this record. I thank you for Luke's gospel that's been preserved for us. And we open it up with, with joy, ready to receive from you, and that your spirit may have full reign in your name. 
Amen. Jesus, once again, reveals the necessity of a suffering Messiah. This is the third time that he has told them, with each time mentioning, uh, revealing something of more information, revealing more information. This is the first time, though, that Jesus has mentioned that the Gentiles, that it will be the Gentiles that will serve as his executioner. He reveals several observations. Number one, their arrival at Jerusalem will climax the earth, his earthly ministry. That will be the end of his earthly ministry. His suffering has been prophesied by the Old Testament prophets. It is something that they have read, that they had learned. It's something that God has revealed in the past. We'll also see, thirdly, that he'll be delivered over to, to, to the Gentiles. Number four, his suffering will include ridicule, torture, indignities, and then death. He will also rise from the dead on the third day. Sixthly, the disciples could not understand his words. They were prevented from it. And number seven, they were supernaturally actually hindered from understanding. So there was a sense in which humanly they could not understand it, but also spiritually we see that God had prevented them from understanding what was happening. Now, Jesus makes a point that all of these things were written by the Messiah, by the prophets. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Isaiah 53, an important scripture in the Bible, in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53. And while turning there, consider the following passages here on the monitor, where we read in Psalms 2, where, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the heart set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, speaking of Jesus. In Micah 5.1, we read, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. And again in Psalms 22, For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all of my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. We now understand this to be what's called a messianic psalm, a psalm about the Messiah. But as you and I come to Isaiah 53, I'm going to ask you to read silently with me the prophecy of Isaiah that was written hundreds of years before Christ. It's found in Isaiah 53. Read as it says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. It goes on to write that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces, for he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He goes on, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we, wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. 
Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, and the Lord, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. <coughs> Out of the anguish of his soul, it continues. He shall see and be satisfied. His knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear the iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Now I, I know that's a long portion of scripture there, but it's an important scripture. As we leak, it says, Jesus says, this has been written of me of the prophets that I must be tortured, that I must be betrayed, that I must be rejected, that I must die. Of course, from this side of, Cal of Calvary on the cross, it's much easier for you and I to read this and to read what happened to Jesus back into this passage. Even as we looked at those other three passages earlier. You and I look back and we can agree with Jesus. And, and we wonder why is it that the disciples had a such time, had such a hard time understanding and grasping this declaration that his betrayal, arrest, trial, torture, crucifixion, and death and resurrection had been prophesied throughout scripture. You and I can understand it easily. However, we have to get back and understand as the disciples were listening to Jesus 2,000 years ago originally saying this statement. They really had no concept of a suffering Messiah. They did not connect the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 with their Messiah. Jesus' statement actually goes contrary to what they believed and were taught. Even after his resurrection, Jesus had to reiterate that his suffering had been revealed in the Old Testament. In the infamous walk to Emmaus after Jesus' resurrection... Jesus was walking with two of his disciples, though they did not recognize him at the time. And they were telling him all that had happened, and they were mourning the fact that their Jesus, their Messiah, the one they thought was Messiah, had died. But Jesus replied, it says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer all these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them all the things and scriptures that spoke of him concerning himself. You see, the apostles' remarks that the that the, the apostles' remarks to that. I'm sorry, I'm all over my place. The remarks of the Jews' suffering of Jesus is a stumbling block. The Apostle Paul, when he says that the cross, it's a stumbling block. It is a barrier. It is something that is not feasible. It was very hard for them to comprehend. To understand that, Thomas Schreiner, Professor Thomas Schreiner notes in his commentary, you'll see it here on the monitor, 
that in the Old Testament, Israel was delivered or handed over to its enemies because of its sin, its defections from, uh, from Jesus, uh, from, from, I must have cut something out there, I'm sorry. So what we see is that in the Old Testament, uh, God would send Israel and punish them by the Gentiles. That was a, a punishment. However, Jesus' words would be utterly mysterious to disciples because those handed over to the enemies were actually under God's wrath. And such a fate makes no sense to the Messiah, the Christ. For them, it was their, he, the Messiah was going to come and, and destroy their enemies. He was going to come and, 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 and reset up Israel in the, in, the, in the kingdom of God. David, again, would be on his throne and the Messiah would rule. Luke adds that the disciples' failure to understand was also because the Holy Spirit had not yet revealed this truth to them. For some reason, there was, a, there was scales on their eyes and they could not see fully what the prophets had written about and spoken about. They were hindered by the Spirit from fully grasping the truth. Though we are not exactly sure why the Father had not given them this understanding, one reason might have been their attempt to prevent the redemption plan from going further. We see the first time that Jesus revealed this information, Peter strongly rejected it and even rebuked Jesus, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this should never happen to you. And Jesus responded, Get behind me, Satan, from you are preventing the very work of God. How often do we as men and women try to hinder the work of God because God works in such a way that we don't understand and we want to say, no, God, you need to do it this way. Yet God's redemption plan included, determined, it was, it was set in place that the Messiah must die. Now, that's the point as we see that it was in, that it was in prophesied. Now I want to look at that phrase, will be accomplished. I want us to consider what Jesus meant when he declared that everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. What that phrase, will be accomplished, means. Now, you and I know to accomplish means to finish, to complete, to fulfill, or to be finished, to be completed, to be fulfilled, to perfect it. Now, there's several questions that arise when I was thinking of this passage. Is why was Jesus' suffering and humiliation prophesied what was the purpose of his suffering and humiliation what is trying to be accomplished through that what exactly is being accomplished through these events now the answer to these questions is that his death and resurrection were part of God's redemption plan it's very simply this is God's plan of redemption and it serves as the heartbeat of the story of the Bible. You, you know, we, we laugh about this, smile about this, but, but I talk about the story of the Bible is that, that the prince slays the dragon and wins the girl. And the heartbeat of that story is the gospel, that Jesus must die as a sacrifice substitute for us. Jesus is pointing out the need for a suffering Messiah, something that they had a hard time contemplating, something that they haven't even considered. The ESV study Bible notes here on the monitor that Jesus will be delivered over to the Gentiles just as Israel was handed over to the Gentiles for the punishment for their sins in the Old Testament. So Jesus was handed over to bear God's wrath for the sins of his people. 
Those are words that alarm me. These are the words and the concept that they struggled to understand. And to be honest, I believe most of the world struggles with that concept as well. Dr. Schreiner writes again that Luke implies that Jesus will be handed over for our sake and in our place. This is the plan of God. In scriptures we learn when Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual places or uh, blessings in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So even before he said in the beginning, God had planted this plan of redemption, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In him, speaking of Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, making known to us the mystery of his will. What is God doing according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. On the monitor, you'll see another one. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born on the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoptions of sons. So when it's speaking of the fullness of time, we're speaking of Jesus' incarnation. Anywhere between 4 and 6 BC, the fullness of time had come and Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary as we just spoke of in our Apostle Creed. It's very important for us. Again, Scripture goes on to say, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So again, we're trying to ask the question, what is being accomplished by Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection? It's the very plan of redemption to make us in Christ to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to make us right with God or to be declared right by God, to be adopted into his family. Peter preached in Acts chapter 4, speaking to the uh, Jews. He says, for truly in this city, speaking of Jerusalem, he says, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So in other words, even though that Jesus is going to die at the hands of the Gentiles, it was, as you know, the religious leaders who prompted, uh, uh, not Caesar, but prompted Pontius Pilate to to such actions. It was their words, crucify him, crucify him. Give us Barabbas, give us Barabbas. Crucify him, crucify him. And even though we may say the blood upon their hands, the blood is on all of us. But yet in the end, we also have to recognize it was God's predetermined plan to send Jesus. It was God the Father who turned Jesus over to the Gentiles and to the religious leaders to do whatever their hand saw fit. They did the will of God. That's a hard concept. But this is the concept that will eventually turn the world upside down. 
It's good to remind ourselves that Jesus had been teaching that the only way to approach a holy God is through humility. That's what we've been looking at these last few weeks. The only way for you and I as sinful men and women to approach a holy God is through humility, obedience, and childlike trust. We must recognize that there is nothing within us. Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. We must come to him in persistent prayer. We must come to him in childlike faith and trust, knowing that there is nothing that makes us right with God. Through his suffering, Jesus is the epitome, is the the perfect picture of the humility and self-sacrifice that he has been teaching over the last few weeks. The author of Hebrew writes, you see it here on the monitor, then in days of his flesh... Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, speaking of the Father. And he was heard because of his reverence. And although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, speaking of in the flesh. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation all obey him. That is so important. When someone says, how is it that you know that you have the new birth, that you have been regenerated, that you are a son of God, that you are been saved? It's because Jesus is the source of my righteousness. It's nothing that I've done. It's only in the fact that God has accepted the perfect obedience of Christ on my behalf. That's so important for you and I to understand. The ESB comments that Jesus' lifelong perfection of obedience provides the basis for eternal salvation and the ultimate perfection of those who respond in faith and obedience. So here it is, and, and this earth, you and I will never be good enough, righteous enough to be accepted by God. So how is it that you and I get to spend eternity How is it that you and I get to spend eternity in heaven or get to enter into the kingdom of God? It's through the righteousness of Christ. See, when we are in Christ, he sees Christ instead of my sin and my heart. For you and I know that even though we are new creatures, even though we are born again, we've been saved, there's still sin that resides in this old flesh, these old habits. Our minds are still corrupted to a degree. We still desire the things of the flesh at times. And that's the battle we have. But it's, it's Jesus who makes us clean. This is so important. See, God's plan of redemption comes not as man would expect, but with power and force, not with power and force, but with through obedient suffering. The way to victory and triumph in this life to obtain and inherit the kingdom of God is through suffering. If we were to put it in just a phrase, salvation comes through suffering. Jesus must be betrayed. He must be tortured. He must be beaten, ridiculed, mocked on our behalf by, by and, 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 excuse me, and, and bear the wrath of God on our behalf for us so that we might live. Salvation comes through suffering. That's why Jesus says we must deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. 
We need to recognize that we must be uh, humble and be perfect or be obedient as he is. Now, understanding Jesus' statement that the Messiah must first suffer and then rise in victory, we consider what that means for us today. So we see that it is written before in the prophets, is the eternal plan of God. We see now that what Jesus is teaching is this is how God is is planning to redeem the world. He's planning how to, to make all things new again, how he is restoring all things once again. But now you and I have to ask the question, what does this mean for you and I 2,000 years later? What does this mean for us? Going back to the end of Luke's recording of this conversation, he writes that the disciples understood none of these things, that this saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said. As I said earlier, it's easier for us to understand Jesus' words and the Father's plan on this side of Calvary. It's always, hindsight is always easier. But we must not be too hard on the disciples for their failure to grasp Jesus' words. This is a foreign concept. It was foreign to their Jewish heritage, their traditions, and their teachings. They are learning that the kingdom of God is upsetting many people's aspirations and dreams and expectation of what it means to inherit eternal life. We see that with the Pharisees. They think it's about their righteousness and their good works. We saw the rich young ruler says, I have done everything good. I am a good person. But we see that that does not get you into heaven. Once again, we're indebted to Dr. Schreiner, who writes that we are reminded that we are members of an upside-down kingdom. Everything about the kingdom of God is different, is almost opposite than what you and I know. When we are weak, that's when we are strong. It is the poor of this world who are rich. It's the hungry who are filled. It's those crying will laugh and those who are persecuted who will enjoy the kingdom. It is the wicked tax collector instead of the righteous Pharisee who is saved. It is the blind person who sees, while those who, are bl- uh, while those who see are blind. Those who are crippled become whole, while those who are healthy become crippled. Those who are deaf hear, while those who hear become deaf. Our God works in astonishing ways. And all the honor, praise, and glory goes to him. God turns things upside down so that we will see that the credit goes wholly to him and not to us. And so as you and I sit here this morning, we say, okay, then how do we do that today? Since these truths have now been made clear to us through the life of Christ as found in Scripture and the work of the Holy Spirit, you and I now are able to understand what our role is and how we're to apply Jesus' life of perfect obedience. Very simply, you and I are called to preach the the victory of a suffering Messiah. We are not looking forward to his suffering. We are now looking for his victorious coming back. The apostle Paul writes to the church of Corinth. You see him here. It says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. And we must understand that. Is that when you and I preach a suffering Messiah, that that to, to live you must die. This is, this is something that many are going to struggle with. To them, it's foolish. 
But to those of us who are being saved, to those that God is, has elected, God has chosen, those that God is going to adopt in his family, it is the power of God. But he goes on to say, but we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to the Jews, and leave it here, and a folly to the Gentiles. They can't understand. Again, it's a stumbling block to the Jews because in their mind, the Messiah is not to die, but he is to be victory. He is to be a triumphant king. But they missed the first part of what his return was to be, his first advent. And then it's folly to the Gentiles, to them. That's how I inherit eternal life? Is I got to trust in someone who died and rose? No one's ever done that. There's no way. That's a silly way to have a plan of redemption. However, Paul writes, is our message is simple. Christ crucified. The necessity of Christ to be crucified. Let's go to the next one. He goes on to write to the church of Corinth. And when I came to you, brothers, I did not proclaim to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. We're not here to, to entertain you. I don't have smokes and mirrors. I'm not riding a Harley Davidson up here. I'm not zip lining down the line or having a Super Bowl party. I'm just telling you one thing. Christ crucified. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It is sad that many churches today are promoting everything but Christ crucified. Because if I teach Christ crucified, then I must teach that you and I must also then take up our cross and deny ourselves. But that's not the message of today. And then Paul says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. The important, most important message <clears throat> that's found in scripture, most important message that you and I can share is that Christ died and rose again. It is the message that changes the world. This message is the words that turn the world upside down. In Acts 17, from our scripture reading earlier, we see that the people are complaining that these men have turned the world upside down. It will. It will turn your world upside down. It will smash your dreams and aspirations. It will change your life completely if you accept it. That's the message that you and I have. So here's the phrase here. Here's as I come to the closing. May we continue to preach and teach and share and counsel with that very same message. Let us pray that through our obedient, faithful endeavors, God will turn our family, our friends, and our communities up side down. May we confidently, boldly, and courageously preach Christ was crucified for the salvation of all of God's people. For it was necessary for Christ to undergo his suffering and humiliation. I'd like to close with this passage of scriptures found in Philippians chapter 2. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, 
who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let us commit to that message, for that is the message that will change lives, turning their world upside down. I'm going to ask with every head bowed and every eye closed as the worship team comes on up. Randy as well for a prayer. This is a little bit shorter message that I normally would give. No amens. But I want to impress on you the necessity and the importance of Christ's crucifixion. We are to grasp this. We are to share this. This is the most important thing that you and I must understand for our own eternal life and for those that we love and care for. Let us commit to doing that this morning. Randy, would you come and close us in prayer? We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.